Welcome, everyone, to the first ever edition of the Rapid Fire Review Roundup, now part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. Uh, in a little bit, we're going to be talking about all of the movies that Scott and I have seen from the months of February and March that we didn't get to talk to uh, on the podcast. We, you know, we've been making tweaks and changes, the biggest change of which happened earlier this month in March. But over the last two months, we haven't been doing additional movie reviews as uh, a complement to our main episodes. And so today, we're going to be taking the time to cover all those movies. But before we get to those movies, Scott, how have you been doing? Uh, I've been good. You know, some of these movies uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about. It's been a while since I've seen uh, some of them, but, uh, you know, I've been wanting to talk about uh, a few of these movies. uh, And, you know, it's it's surprising how much good stuff we've gotten this early in the year. Uh, And so, you know, I hope that even though some of these movies have been out for a little bit, um, you know, we can still encourage some people to go see the ones that are really good. Absolutely, and the, and the, and for those that aren't out, we can we can always encourage people to go find those when they do come out on VOD. Some of them, I imagine, will probably be out on VOD sooner than you think. So just keep on a, uh, keep an eye out for them, uh, and we'll of course talk about those when they are relevant. And then, of course, I'm sure some of these movies might come back around at the end of the year. Yeah, and I mean, I think you're right. Some of them probably will be on VOD soon. Like, I noticed that Happy Death Day to You, which just came out on Valentine's Day, is going to be out on VOD really soon. So, you know, keep an eye out for when these movies do get released on iTunes or wherever else. Awesome, yeah. And, you know, like I mentioned, we're covering all the movies from February and March. Going forward, we're going to do this episode monthly. So it's not going to be in two-month chunks. It's going to be in one-month chunks. But as we roll out the new content and the new style of content that we're doing things got a bit backed up. And so we're jamming two months into one here going forward. This episode, I imagine, will be a little bit shorter and a little bit lighter on content. But that being said, Scott, you ready to do this? Let's do it. We're going to start off with the the latest James Cameron outfit um, produced by James Cameron and John Landau, directed by Robert Rodriguez. That is Alita Battle Angel. Scott, this movie stars Rosa Salazar in the titular role, which is, uh, I, I guess the, the best way to put it is a, is a cyborg that Christoph Waltz's character, whose name's Dr. Ito, uh, finds in the scrapyard at the beginning of the film, reconstructs her, gives her a body, puts her back together. And, you know, she, although her brain is fully functional, she doesn't have all of her memories together uh, yet. And, and over the course of this film, as she's reintroduced to this world of Iron City and then uh, where, where, where they are, Iron City, and, and below, and then, of course, the kind of mythical city up above called Zalem. Uh, wh- what we see is a uh, kind of wrestling with her own past life that she's trying to uncover, Alita, as she has these experiences. And uh, meanwhile, you also have these kind of different subplots that include characters uh, like Hugo, played by Keon Johnson, or Kean Johnson, I'm not sure how to pronounce that name. Uh, he plays Alita's love interest, and... Uh, <laughs> I guess he's a, a no better way to describe him than a, a junk dealer. He he destroys cyborgs for or cuts cyborgs up for parts, sells them to Mahershala Ali's Vector, who is kind of the motorball ringleader. I don't even know how, how else to describe him. He kind of runs the motorball show, which is the big sport in this world of Iron City. Uh, he and Jennifer Connelly's doctor is it Kieran Kyron Sheeran? I don't remember how to pronounce her name. Right. Well, uh, which also happens to be Dr. Ito's ex-wife, but she is this kind of 
engineer who does work for Vector. She tries to work her bet her way to Zalem uh, uh, on Mahershala Ali's promises. There are a bunch of other supporting roles uh, in, in this in this movie, including Ed Skrein, who plays Zapan, uh, Jackie Earl Haley, who plays Gorwishka, who is sort of the I don't know the henchman of Mahershala Ali's Vector, and then you get a cameo from a very well known actor at the very end of the film. Who, who is also playing this sort of overlord kind of character called Nova uh, throughout the film. That being said, Scott, you know, it, James Cameron, obviously very well known for his movies such as Titanic back in the 90s, Avatar back in, you know, the the knots. Uh, but the, is this his kind of next? Will this be his next big hit? I mean, the, I mean, we won't. We won't hide the lead here. This movie is not making the money that Avatar did as, you know, of course, Avatar being the highest grossing film of all time at the box office. But, you know, Scott, I had certain expectations going into this movie. I thought it would be cinematically beautiful. I, you know, I expected good performances from some of the cast members at the very least. But, of course, with James Cameron, as has kind of become uh, routine or almost stereotypical of James Cameron uh, pieces of, of work of film from James Cameron, is that the story might be a bit of a question mark. Did that kind of play out for you the way you expected? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to say, you know, you mentioned that cameo from a well-known actor. You know, it's strange to me that you would call Steven Seagal a well-known actor at this point. But, yeah, I mean, definitely a weird cameo that that he shows up in this movie. But, uh, no, obviously, I'm joking and I'm not actually going to spoil who the cameo was. But, yeah, I think you – You really shouldn't have – you shouldn't have clarified. It would have been really funny for people to think <laughs> that's that true. Movie I, I should like, have. Wait, that's not Steven Seagal. Well, hey, I don't know if you've seen this video that's going around on Twitter, but – these it's basically him destroying like these 30 year old idiots in karate. Like even now being, you know, the, the fat guy that he is, he can, he's still got it, I guess, but the guys are also idiots. But anyway, enough about him. Uh, I think you pretty much nailed it when you're describing, you know, what the problems are with James Cameron's movies. I think, you know, they, they pretty much apply here. The story, I mean, you could probably just tell from that plot description, there's a lot going on here and it's definitely a bit muddled throughout uh, although I think the note that it ends on is is promising for, you know, future entries in this franchise. If we do get sequels, you know, you, you mentioned the the financial struggles that it might be having. Uh, I mean, I, I imagine whether it gets a sequel or not will be dependent a lot on that. But there's a there's a lot to like in this movie still. Um, I think that the world in which all of this takes place is really awesome. Like from the very beginning. Uh, my friend and I, who I went to see this movie with, we we're like, okay, like, this is cool. Like, I, I like the world. Like, I want to explore more of what's going on, like, in, in this universe. Of course, this is based on a manga. I'm not sure if you mentioned that or not. But, you know, obviously, it's based on that. But, you know, the the visuals are very spectacular, as, you, as you've come to expect from a James Cameron movie. Maybe not as you've come to expect from a Robert Rodriguez movie. But uh, I think that they, you know, pair nicely here. But I think that, you know, and, and the action is really good, too. Um, like, there's some very uh, inventive fight scenes that, like, aren't just the same boring mash up fight scenes that you get in, you know, a lot of action movies. The motorball scenes are exciting, uh, even though the sport kind of seems a lot like rollerball to me. But, and I think, you know, maybe the strongest thing about the movie is the performance by Rosa Salazar, uh, motion capture performance, obviously, but I think she does a, a spectacular job, honestly. I think that for as much as this movie maybe lacks in character development for some of the other characters, 
Uh, I don't think you could say the same about Alita or, you know, if you can say that for the character, I think that Rosa Salazar's performance is so good that you really never notice the any flaws that there might be to the development of this character. She's got such great charisma right off the bat. Uh, her voice complements the character very well. Um, and I think, you know, she she is the main reason to see this movie in addition to the visuals. The other characters, as I mentioned, probably not as well drawn in particular. Uh, Hugo, the love interest, played by Keon Johnson, who I don't think does a particularly good job. Uh, not a great character. And, and a lot of the dialogue uh, throughout the movie is somewhat tin-eared, but especially in the romantic scenes between them. You know, there's a scene in the trailer that there's a line that's just so such a bad line that I was really hoping that it was one of those rare things where you see the scene in the trailer, but it's actually cut out of the final movie, but where, you know, he, he says, she says something like, Oh, I, I, you know, I, I don't feel human. Uh, and he says to her like, Oh, you're the most human person I've ever met or something like that. It's just very bad and cheesy. But I think that, you know, that unfortunately they left that line in the movie. Unfortunately they left a lot of other lines in the movie as well. Uh, but Overall, this was a solid movie. I'm not sorry that I watched it. It's cool to look at. Um, you know, James Cameron does what James Cameron does. And I think it's worth seeing on a big screen. And if there's a sequel, I'm here for it. Yeah, I saw this movie in Dolby and then I saw it in IMAX 3D, Scott. I am not a fan of 3D and I was very hesitant and I actually really liked it. It was well done 3D. It didn't lean into the things with 3D that I really dislike. I really expected them with certain scenes. Scott, and you'll know what I'm talking about with Gorwishka, where I thought that it would like throw things at you kind of in the face and make you lean back in your chair and things like that. But it didn't do that. And I really appreciated that. But this movie, the more I think about it, um, I probably want to like this more movie more than I actually like it. I do think it is. It it ultimately is a positive for me. I think Rosa Salazar is absolutely captivating. I love this character to your point where, where other characters kind of fail you and let you down. Alita herself and Rosa Salazar do the opposite. I think that she is the heart of this movie. And if you can't connect with Alita or you can't vibe with that character, you're not going to end up liking pretty much any part of this movie. I don't think because, you know, besides the visuals, she's the thing that kind of keeps you rooted to your seat and keeps you in the theater. The visuals are absolutely stunning. Scott, I don't know if this movie will win best visual effects at the Oscars next year, but it's got to be in, in, top running for it because this movie is just beautiful absolutely beautiful what they do the world building the lore i love it it's it's why i want a sequel i want to know more about iron city i want to know more about zalem i want to know more about nova i want to know more about all these things and i think that that's why i think that this is the exact kind of movie where the sequel would literally be five to ten times better than the origin story i think that it could be that good i think that all James Cameron needs is he needs someone to just come write his movie for him, make sure it has the visual flair of James Cameron. So, you know, producing it, working with them. And uh, at that point, I think that um, the the production company and, and the people giving James Cameron the money for this force him to find a writer for his script. And that's not to cut him out of the, out, out of the story crafting. He absolutely needs to be a part of it. Like his vision and his fingerprints are all over this movie in really positive ways. But the actual script itself, the screenplay can be refined and become much, much stronger for the second film and still have his vision in it, if that makes sense. And so I think that with the right people involved, with the right script writer involved, uh, a sequel to this movie, if it does happen, I mean, could be an absolutely amazing movie. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look back at 
James Cameron, you know, what he did with the Terminator. Like, I think most people, myself included, would probably say that the second Terminator movie is even better than the original. Um, and so, you know, may- maybe with Alita, we'll see an example of where he can work out what people didn't like about the first movie and come up with something truly great uh, the second time around. And I, I like I said, I, I, I also hope that they make a sequel just because this world is so interesting. They have a really good character to go off of. And I think that uh, there are still definitely some stories that that can be told here that are in- more interesting than what we get in this movie. My biggest fear, Scott, about this movie is that this would be like Mortal Engines from last year. Thankfully, it hasn't been. And those fears were probably misplaced, right? Like James Cameron and Robert Rodriguez are much more known quantities with, you know, Rosa Salazar at the helm, etc. Much more known quantities than uh, was it Christian Rivers or whoever it was that was directing Mortal Engines and the completely unknown cast besides uh, Hugo Weaving in the supporting role. But this movie wasn't that it's made it's almost made its money back, if not already made its money back. And hopefully, hopefully, hopefully that means we'll be getting a sequel. But I think that should just about wrap up our conversation about Alita Battle Angel. Scott, uh, we'll, for the for the sake of time, actually, no, we'll do it. Uh, what was your favorite scene from the podcast from from Alita Battle Angel? Say what yours is first and give me some time to think of one. <laughs> the motorball scene. For me, right? I mean, there's so many beautiful shots and beautiful moments in this movie, but the motorball scene where this it's like what the second tier qualifying round or whatever, mm-hmm. when she goes absolutely ham on all those hunter warriors and kind of people who have uh, bounties on their heads who are have been who Vector Mahershala Ali's character has brought together to kill her in, in the motorball ring. I think that scene is great. You talked about the action sequences being amazing in this movie, and this is the prime example of good acting. I'll go with a similar example. I really like the scene, the fight scene that happens in, I guess it's like a bar um, that, you know, where she, she ends up taking on a bunch of other, I, I think they're also, you know, bounty hunters as well. Um, and has that, you know, line where she says, I will not stand by in the presence of evil. And I was like, heck yeah. And then, you know, Gets in, gets in a huge fight with all of them, a big barroom brawl until Christoph Waltz shows up and breaks everything up. But another really cool action sequence in the movie. Agreed. That's my second favorite scene because that is a great action sequence. It's just, it's great to see Alita just like absolutely lose it with these guys. Go ham, yeah. Yeah, beat, beat, the, beat the shit out of them, to be honest. Yeah. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. Alita Battle Angel. 6.7. Uh, promising, but they're not there yet. Yeah, they're certainly not there yet. For me, the second watch brought the score up a little bit. It's a little bit higher than you. Uh, I'm at a 7.0. Yeah, that's very fair. Awesome. All right, Scott, next movie. I'm going to turn it over to you to introduce this one. Happy Death Day to you. Yeah, very was very excited about this movie, as you know, going into this year. It was a relatively quick turnover after the, the first movie, which came out in the fall of 2017, but... Uh, you know, fine by me because I absolutely loved the first movie. It was one of my top 10 favorite movies of 2017. Um, it's just a really, really fun and clever spin on Groundhog Day. You know, that we, we've seen a lot of those types of movies um, re- and recently, but I haven't got tired of them yet because they've all been good. And Happy Death Day was one of the best to me. If you didn't see the first film, it's a slasher comedy about uh, a girl named Tree Geldman, played by Jessica Roth. Uh, who gets stuck in a time loop and has to keep living the same day, uh, the day of her birthday, as a matter of fact, over and over again uh, until she can discover the person who murders her uh, while wearing a baby mask. Um, 
And of course, at the end of the first movie, she does discover who murders her. Uh, and so I think there was some skeptical people were skeptical about how the sequel was going to work. But uh, we we get uh, sort of a uh, explanation for that fairly early on, because at the beginning, we find out that Ryan, uh, who is the roommate of Carter, that's uh, that's Tree's boyfriend from the first movie, who who also plays a significant role in the first movie. But Ryan, he doesn't have as, as significant a role in the first movie. He is in the movie, but he has a small but memorable role. But this time he he's much more he's thrust much more to the forefront because we find out that basically the cause for the time loop um, is that he's created this sort of like I don't even know how to describe it this you know device uh, machine called Sissy uh, re- reactor type thing that has basically created a multiverse and uh, there's uh, another universe going on and in order to sort of close the loop. Uh, tree is going to have to tree and, and the rest of the gang are going to have to go back uh, to that pre- to that previous day, the day that she lived through in the first Happy Death Day, and uh, close the loop and, and memorize all these algorithms. It's it, it's a it's a little bit complex, but uh, luckily the movie doesn't doesn't spend too much time on it. But Tree soon finds out that when she does go back to that previous day, that there are things that are similar, but there's also some things that have changed a lot. For example, now Carter is dating uh, Danielle, who is the the sort of evil sorority girl from the first movie, who, of course, didn't even know who Carter was. Uh, but now not only is she dating him, but she's also like maybe not the evil sorority girl. And she's giving all this money to charity and, and is just a great person that everyone loves. So things just don't seem quite right to Tree. Um, and, and ultimately, she's she's forced to make a, a choice uh, in terms of uh, how how she's going to uh, return to the life that she uh, she wants. Uh, but this movie is directed once again by Christopher Landon. Landon wrote this movie as well, the sequel. Um, he didn't write the first movie. Scott Lobdell did. So he's taken over the writing duty here. Um, and I think you'd agree with me, Scott, that there's a much more broadly comedic tone to this one. There's there's more genres at play here. There's even kind of a, a tear-jerking family drama in some parts. There's a, a heist movie towards the end, but I, it, it's really throwing a lot of things at, at the wall and seeing whether they stick or not. And I want to know, did they stick for you, Scott? Some of them did. Some of them did. Some of them didn't. I said this in kind of my letterbox review that it, exactly to your point. This is a such a throw everything at the wall and see what sticks kind of movie. And you know, it, it enough sticks for me to feel good about this movie walking out of the theater. I saw this, unfortunately, not in a full theater. I, I saw this like middle of the week, like on a Wednesday night at like 10 p.m. I saw it pretty late, but it was it was a fun experience. You know, this was a tough one for me because I felt like I was really in and out of this movie. At times, I thought like I was bored and kind of tired of, of the hook, and it was—I mean, it was playing around with a lot of different hooks. To be fair, and then five minutes later, I'd—I would be totally vibing with the movie again and totally back in it. It was—and it was very strange. That's not an experience that I normally get. Usually, when I feel disconnected or out of touch with the movie, that's just the way it is throughout the whole movie. So it was a—it was a strange experience from a from a film viewing perspective for me. I just think that there's just so much heart and character in Jessica Roth's tree that ultimately like this movie was probably always going to succeed even if it didn't do anything innovative or creative like it it didn't need to introduce a multiverse to make this movie interesting and it did and you know it tried a bunch of new things some of them worked and some of them didn't some of the new things ultimately 
I think kind of resulted in this movie having quite a few loose ends and and narratively in terms of story, uh, just, just because, you know, it it tried a lot of things and it, and the things that didn't work and they didn't really close the loop on and follow up with, which is fine. I I get it. It's not, you don't get a free pass for doing that, but I, I do understand at the end of the day though, you know, by the time this movie ended and the credits rolled and a post credit scene happened, I was like, all right, fast track a third movie. I want to, I want to see the end of this trilogy. If that's what it is, because ultimately it's really fun. Jessica, like I said, Jessica Roth is great. Israel Broussard has just enough chemistry to get by. I like some of the supporting characters in this movie. I mean, literally you never heard of any of these people. It's how they stay, keep such a low production budget. This movie didn't make as much money as the first one, but it still has, you know, five X it's, it's production budget. So it's in good shape. Yeah, this movie is a lot of fun. I don't think it's as good as the first movie. I think, you know, kind of maybe hinted at it during the plot description just, but I I don't really know that I I wanted an explanation for the time loop. Like I I, I would never thought in the five times that I've seen the first movie that, oh, I really wonder why she's stuck in this. Like that's not really the point. Uh, But to the to the credit of the filmmakers, like I think again, people were concerned about they were just going to do the same thing over and over again as the first movie, uh, and that was you know there was going to be nothing new going on here. And yet, I think because of the setup of the movie, they find a way to do the same thing, but at the same time also be doing something very different. Uh, and I you know I credit I give them a lot of credit for being willing to go out on some limbs. Um, you know, just for the sake of doing something different. And I think a lot of them pay off. I think you're right that maybe the best thing about both of these movies is the characters and in particular, Jessica Roth's tree. I mean, I think that is really the joy of the first movie uh, is watching the development of this character uh, from the beginning of the movie, from, you know, spoiled sorority girl to actually learning a lot about herself. And, you know, I think she even says it herself, like, had to die a lot of times to learn how I was supposed to live. Uh, she says that in that diner scene uh, from the first movie. And I think, you know, th- that's really the, you know, as much as, you know, you're into the suspenseful plot of, of who's the killer and everything. I think that's really the, the joy and the pleasure of watching the first movie. And I, you know, I think the same thing applies here. I do have some, you know, logical problems with sort of maybe what happens at the end of this movie to the point where I, I really wonder if, the the central choice that tree has to make in this movie i, I wonder whether it's, it's really necessary for her to have to make the choice uh but i ultimately i understand what the movie was going for and even if i didn't it, i wasn't totally in love with it uh as i was with the first movie i think kind of like i i talked about with the lego movie too i wasn't disappointed at all being a super fan of the first movie and i don't think that many people will be as well um because i think if you liked the first movie you're going to have a lot of fun with this one too. Yeah. yeah I think that's, I, I mean, I, I'm totally with you that, that, that we need a third one. I, again, I'm not sure what it's going to be about. Um, it, you know, even though there, there is some funny stuff that goes on in the post credit scene, but I wasn't sure what this one is going to be about and they won me over. So let's uh, sign me up for two years from now for happy death day three. Yeah. You know, I, I would go a step further and say it's more, I had more logical problems or, or question marks around this plot you know, beyond just the one that you're referring to, which I agree with is a, is a, is a very critical uh, hole in the plot. And I thought an interesting take that the, an interesting direction they went at the end of the movie. That being said, I, I think this is kind of, it, it, there's actually probably this plot's probably littered with, with plot holes. 
unfortunately. I mean, you don't go to this movie because you're like, oh, the plot is going to be like super well crafted mm-hmm. or whatever. But that also doesn't mean you should get a free pass for yeah. throwing things at the wall and not closing the loop on them. I totally agree. What's your favorite scene from this one? The To me, I think this is also the case of the first one, but the montage of deaths where – she oh, yeah she has to well, and it's it's kind of the heart of it is memorizing the algorithm and then just dying in really spectacular and creative ways which they also managed to do in the first one that was kind of the point in the movie where i might have found myself particularly kind of out of the out of the hook and i was a little bit bored and i'm like all right can i get to keep this one going for another hour or whatever it might have been in terms of timing but then you get this montage you get the you get a nice music music musical interlude with it and it's just it's it's the best part of the movie yeah, I agree. This map montage set to uh, Hard Times by Paramore is the clear standout scene in the movie. Um, some of the deaths are just hilarious, and especially the the very last death um, that happens in this montage is really funny. And again, Jessica Roth, she gives she, the full range of emotions are on display um, in her performance, and I think she nails all of them. And I hope that uh, you know she becomes a star because I think. You know, even for people who have not enjoyed these movies, I think people have seen how much she has brought to them. And I, I have a feeling she'll definitely get a lot of good work out of this franchise. So, yeah, that's my favorite scene as well. What's your number, Scott? 7.2. And I do think that Jessica Roth already has the lead in a in a comedy musical called Valley Girls. So we'll see what she does there. Yeah, she's she's very talented musically as well. If you saw La La Land, you know she played one of Emma Stone's friend. Unfortunately, got only really one musical number in that. But I think if you go back and listen to someone in the crowd, she has like the best voice of any of them. So, uh, yeah, I, I can't I, disagree with that. Well, what's your score? My score is uh, seven point eight. Uh, I think I'm a little higher just because I love the first movie and love the character so much. But uh, I mean, yeah, this uh, this is a really fun sequel. And I, I I will admit I did have my doubts going in, but they won me over. So 7.8. Hey, it, I, I would say this is a strongly recommended 7.2 for me. Yeah, for sure. All right. Next movie. All right. Next movie. We're hitting no one of Netflix's uh, uh, outputs for for the month of February was Steven Soderbergh's High Flying Burger, uh, American sports drama. I have to say not a movie I expect to see from Steven Soderbergh. Uh, I don't know if you, if you feel differently, Scott, but written by is it Terrell Alvin McCraney, who wrote the source material for 2016's Moonlight. So what was adapted into the screenplay for Moonlight? He's the writer here, Steven Soderbergh and his iPhone 10 uh, <laughs> at the director's helm for this one, starring Andre Holland of, of course, Moonlight fame, as well as Zazie Beetz. And Zachary Quinto makes a rather interesting kind of not, mm-hmm. I mean, a little bit more than a cameo, but he only has like two scenes in the movie. Uh, Sonia Sun, who also has a supporting role, really great. But this movie centers around sports agent Ray Burke, who is working to essentially get the NBA out of a lockout. So the, the NBA Players Association and the NBA owners are can't renegotiate a contract. Uh, and Ray Burke, who's the agent I just discussed, uh, basically it follows his his time trying to get the get the league out of a lockout and also support his rookie basketball player named Eric Scott. Uh, his assistant Sam is also in on in on the game, and this is just Scott. I I actually saw this just last night. You've seen it. It's been a little bit since you've seen it. But one of the things that struck me most about this movie was that it's writing from is it McCraney is so sharp. You called it Sorkin like I think that's spot on. 
the, the writing is the best part of this movie. Andre Holland is a close second. I, th- I think his performance as Ray Burke is outstanding. Zazie Beetz, who is my uh, breakout star of 2019, uh, she she isn't given too much in terms of character development to see, but she's an interesting character who always kind of grabbed my attention on the screen. I never quite knew what her deal was. And and I have to say, I even at the end of the movie, I didn't still quite know what her deal was, but it's an interesting character that she played. And, and I, I think the acting and the writing is really great. I think there are some weak spots in the movie, and I think this is kind of a strange complaint, but I think this movie's weakest part is that it just didn't have an X factor for me. It didn't have that special something that gets it into the you know four and a half, five star tier uh, movies for me. I really enjoyed almost all this movie. Sometimes I think it, it, it might have gotten a little bit stale, but it was such a quick and sharp movie that it quickly moved on to the next thing if it ever started broaching that territory. But when I think back on the movie, and maybe I'll feel differently if I rewatched it or if I have a little bit more time to process, I couldn't point to something and say, you know, this is what makes this movie great. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So I think it's also interesting you say that this is not a Soderbergh film. I mean, yes, maybe, and he's broaching some subjects that he hasn't broached before in, in terms of, you know, the world of professional basketball. But I think that if you look at this from a high level, you, you, you know, you could actually say this is a very Soderbergh movie because it's kind of a heist movie. Like it has the same sort of feel to it as, you know, maybe one of the oceans movies or, you know, some of the other, you know, heisty type movies that, that Soderbergh has. Logan Lucky. Yeah. I mean, recently Logan Lucky. Right. Of course I I couldn't remember Logan Lucky, but yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, there, there's this magnetic lead character, as you've pointed out, uh, Ray Burke played by Andre Holland. And he's, you know, always working, you know, on something behind the scenes, you know, maybe you don't realize that uh, he's, he, everything's going according to his plan or, you know, you don't realize he has a plan in place, but then, you know, it kind of gets to the end of the movie. There's, you know, a reveal or two that happens and you realize, oh, hey, you know, this is like, this is all part of the plan, right? Like there's, there's been all of this going on behind the scenes all the time. He's been pulling all the strings, kind of like one of those Oceans movies. So I think it does, you know, have that Soderbergh feel to it for sure. But I, I think I probably liked this movie more than you did. Um, I think, as you pointed out, the script is outstanding. Uh, I think it is very sharp, very witty, and uh, yeah, Sorkin-esque, absolutely. And I think it's it's pretty wise about professional basketball in general and, uh, you know, the way that African-American players in general are mistreated and, you know, even treated like, you know, pawns. Um, there's a there's a running gag in the movie where anytime somebody mentions slaves or slavery, they have to. Uh, what's the quote again that that Bill Duke makes them all say? I love the Lord and all his black people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so like, you know, they 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 definitely hint at the the point that a lot of people have made that, you know, some in some ways is sort of a modern day slavery. I don't know that I would go that far. But, uh, you know, the movie definitely asks some provocative questions in addition to being just really entertaining. And I also think Andre Holland is outstanding, um, electrifying performance from him. And, you know, I don't think he'll get any Oscar contention. This movie's really early in the year and, you know, it's a Netflix movie, but, um, I think he, he absolutely deserves to, to be in the consideration regardless of how many good performances pop up between now and Oscar season. Because I think, you know, as with Sorkin and a lot of his, his, you know, best works, the writing really shows it gives the actors a, an opportunity to show off what they can do. And I think Andre Holland doesn't miss a beat, uh, even though this, you know, some of the dia- rapid fire dialogue and everything is might, might perhaps have a higher degree of <laughs> degree of difficulty. Um, 
he doesn't miss a beat and, you know, it is a really magnetic screen presence. A couple other performances, which um, you didn't highlight, but Bill Duke, who I, I just talked about, the great Bill Duke as the this sort of local coach uh, who coaches some um, uh, younger kids uh, in basketball he, in a gym where, uh, you know, a climactic scene happens later in the movie. Uh, also, Melvin Gregg, who plays uh, Eric Scott, the the player that uh, Andre Holland has as his as his major client. It was actually really funny to see Melvin Gregg in this because he plays a very different type of basketball player in season two of American Vandal, believe it or not. Um, and here, I think people who watched American Vandal will definitely see another side of him here. But I think he does a very nice job uh, in this role as Eric Scott. I, I really believed uh, this character and, uh, you know, really believed him as a uh, basketball star who was sort of on the brink uh, in, in, as far as, you know, this lockout is concerned, but yeah, this is, uh, one of my early favorites for the year. Um, I think I really liked a lot of what was going on here and, uh, I hope to rewatch it again before the end of the year so that I can, uh, you know, have it fresh in my mind because uh, it's definitely one I want to keep fresh in my mind. Absolutely. I think that you're spot on about Andre Holland. This kind of performance is the kind of thing where, you know, I watched this after, after having seen Moonlight and I'm like, all right, Whatever Andre Holland is attached to, I'm now going to go see. Because it's that good, Scott. It just really, it's that good. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Uh, he, uh, from the very first scene, he he lights up the screen. Yeah, and, and I actually take your point about this being a heist movie, kind of when the after the credits roll, you, you realize it is kind of a heist movie, because I think that's a great point. So I tip my hat to that point, and I, and I see where you're coming from there. I, I agree with that. Well, thank you, sir. There you go. Yeah, good insight over there. And, and I guess to, to kind of wrap things up, I think that, High Flying Bird. It's it is an interesting movie. It's an interesting metaphor. I think it'll be up to the viewer's discretion to take them how far they want to take that metaphor. And I, I and one thing nice about the movie is that I don't think and that actually I guess you could even you could see this as a negative though. I, I think I don't think Steven Soderbergh is like putting a stake in the ground on, on how far to take the metaphor, which is something I appreciate. But other people might say, hey, you know, maybe you should be a little bit firmer. Yeah. No, I I agree. Awesome, Scott. Favorite scene. Yeah, so there's uh, you know a couple that come to mind. One is of course just the the basketball gym scene that happens um, between Eric Scott and Jamari or Jamario, I believe is the you know the guy who's sort of his rival in the movie. Um, you know the other sort of top draft pick in in the class that uh, Eric came out of, and they you know kind of go at it in this one scene. It eventually leads to an actual basketball game between the two of them and. It's a good sort of suspenseful scene that happens in the gym that Bill Duke runs. I also really like the scene where uh, where Andre Holland goes to visit Jamari or Jamario, whatever his name is, his his mother, uh, who it's Jamero, Jamero, yeah, Jamero, right? His mother, who is your your you know your stereotypical momager, right? Like she's the mom, but she's also the agent. She's you know the one who's pulling all of uh, Jamar Jamari's or I, I, I already Jamero. Jamera's strings. Um, and she and Andre Holland have a really good back and forth because, you know, he's a very confident, very slick guy who thinks he can sort of play anybody. And he runs into this woman who uh, is is not by any means going to be played. Um, and they have you know, a really nice scene together there at her house. Yeah, so I, I agree. I think that that's a great scene. I'm going to have to go with the very first scene in the movie, the the scene that we open with where you have Andre Holland and Melvin Gregg in kind of the the rooftop restaurant area. 
I love the sort of monologue that ends up to, ends up being a back and forth between the two. It sets the tone for Andre Holland's character throughout the movie, and I loved it. I thought it was just a great a great back and forth. Yeah, it's a really good scene too, and it sets up you know that final scene right that the what happens in the first scene bookends very nicely with what happens at the very end. Agreed, Scott. Let's put a score on this one. High flying bird, eight point five. Really uh, impressed by uh, this. This movie, one of the best from Soderbergh that I've seen in in quite a while. Yeah, and on that note, I actually should make a, a correction to earlier. It's not shot with an iPhone 10. It's shot with an iPhone 8. So Yeah, and I'll just say briefly, I don't really know that that added anything to the movie for me. What what do you mean? Like I don't I don't I don't really think that the fact that it was shot on an iPhone, the iPhone, you know. I, I don't know that it added anything to me like in the way that I, of course I didn't see unsane, but I feel like that the iPhone really added would have added like a very claustrophobic feel, which goes along with that movie. But I'm not sure that the fact that it was shot in an iPhone really added or amplified anything in this movie to me. I just think it's cool more than anything. It's cool. Yeah. Somebody's put on their letterbox review, which I thought was funny. Somebody just said, how do you have this much space on your iPhone? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, for me, I'm actually not coming out that much lower than you, Scott. Maybe just uh, I was talking more to get this to into like the nine or 10 range because um, I'm coming out at an 8.2. I like this movie a lot. It's really yeah, good. it's a good one. To make an allusion to our final movie that we'll be reviewing, I'm going to be free soloing this movie review myself here. And that's <laughs> for Cold Pursuit. This is Liam Neeson's most recent, uh, I don't even know, revenge movie. It's probably like the 3000th revenge movie that he's done in his career. But this this black comedy action film called Cold Pursuit, directed by Hans Petter Moland, Moland, not sure. It's his uh, Hollywood directorial debut uh, from a screenplay by Frank Baldwin. This movie is very paint by the numbers. I'd say you know you have your stereotypical son gets killed by group of bad people. Father, i.e. Liam Neeson, goes and kills all bad people, all the bad people, and and that's like pretty much how this movie plays out. The supporting cast here is like actually pretty strong. You have Emmy Rossum and Laura Dern in the supporting cast, which I mean, at least to me, I saw that and I was like, oh, great. Like there's going to be it's not just Liam Neeson in this movie. We have we have some pretty good uh, names further down the list here. Honest to God, Scott, I have no idea why Laura Dern is in this movie. <laughs> like she she probably only has about like five minutes of screen time in this movie. And she's like the second bill on this movie, which just shows you how dedicated this movie is to Liam Neeson. And then also the kind of the, the big bad as well to be fair is um tom bateman uh no idea if he's related to ben bateman or not but uh <laughs> trevor he plays trevor calcote um uh also known as viking but this this movie is is like is a good paint by the numbers movie it's it's never it's never going to exceed the average i, I guess like to back up it's this idea of like the kind of movie you are and the and the and the, and the attempts that you make at either innovating or playing it safe often determine how good or how bad your score can be. And I think that this type of movie limits itself and how good it can be. But I think within the range that it allows itself, it does a pretty good job. I think that's the best way I can describe it. Liam Neeson is, is probably on the better end of his like revenge movie performances, but there's probably not too much more to add about the acting. The one thing that I think is funny, that's kind of the hook of the movie. There's this, I shouldn't even say it's a hook. It's like a recurring gag. Uh, and that has to do with all the deaths that happen in the movie. I won't spoil it for those of you who do go see it, but 
I thought at first you don't realize what it's doing. And then after it does it two or three or four or five times, uh, you start to know what's going to happen. And it, it, it starts to get playful with that kind of gag towards the end of the movie. And it's really funny. Um, those are some of the highlights of the movie for me. I think that this sort of, I, I should say this, mo- this movie called pursuit. I didn't actually give a plot. I mean, I gave the basic plot description, but Liam Mason gets kind of like man of the year in this rural Colorado town where he drives a snow plow and clears all the roads. And he's like the real hero of society because without him, they'd never be able to do anything or travel anywhere in the town. Cause it's always going to be snowed over. Um, but then his, son dies of a heroin overdose and Liam Neeson's like no no way my son was a heroin addict of course like every the line in the movie is like oh yeah that's what all that's what all parents say to the when their kids OD on drugs um and he proves them wrong and goes and finds the drug basically all the people who were involved in his son's death kills them all by the end of the movie and there's this very strange ending scene between yeah I know right there's this very strange ending scene between Liam Neeson and one character who who comes who is becomes more relevant over the course of the movie, which I won't spoil, but it, it's just a very strange ending, Scott. It's like I said, it's a good average movie. I'm giving it a um a seven point five. Okay, yeah, no, I you know I, I saw the trailers for this movie and I thought that it, of course, like you said, it looks like just another Liam Neeson revenge thriller, but that's probably not giving it enough enough credit just because. I think I have enjoyed some of the the past movies. I mean, I thought Unknown was solid and Nonstop was pretty enjoyable, to be honest. Like, I, I really did enjoy Nonstop. And, you know, this movie got good reviews. So uh, it's probably something I will check out before the end of the year, but not going to be rushing out to theaters to see it. Yeah. Also, I said 7.5. I meant 6.5. I apologize. Okay. Guys. <laughs> it yeah, did yeah. seem a little high, but hey. Yeah, no, no, no. I I was thinking six point five, and then I think I looked down at my sheet of paper where I've written down our other review scores and saw a lot of seven points things and said seven point five. So six point five, six point five, a good average movie. Gotcha. All right, the next movie we're going to be talking about on today's episode of the Rapid Fire Review Roundup is going to be Fighting with My Family, Scott. One that I haven't seen, but you have, and you're a huge fan of it, if I'm understanding correctly. Uh, spoiler alert, but yes, you're correct. I am a huge fan of this movie. Uh, this is from writer-director Stephen Merchant, who uh, is probably most well-known for working with Ricky Gervais on a lot of stuff back in the day, including, I believe, the British version of The Office. Um, and that's honestly one of the reasons why I got intrigued about this movie, because it's not something that I would otherwise uh, necessarily be dying to see. But, uh, you know, I've been seeing – I had been seeing the trailers for a few months before this movie – and I remember saying to you at one point, Scott, that I was like, do I, f- should I feel weird about the fact that I think this movie looks pretty good? Uh, and, you know, the reason that I would feel weird is because it's about a subject that, you know, I don't know anything about and don't ca- really care to know anything about, if we're being perfectly frank, and that's professional wrestling. Um, but, you know, despite all of that, I thought the trailers looked good. And I'm, I'm happy to say that I think Stephen Merchant has created an incredibly enjoyable, crowd-pleasing uh, movie. And really, I mean, it's best probably described as a biopic because this is the story uh, of the WWE wrestler Paige, um, who was one of the sort of groundbreaking female wrestlers in the WWE. Um, and it's really about, you know, her background and how she came to uh, – you know, cement her status as one of the most influential females in WWE. Uh, we get, you know, her humble beginnings. Uh, her name is her real name is Soraya Knight. Uh, she grows up in in Norwich, England. Uh, Scott, you know, we love seeing uh, 
random soccer jerseys in movies. So when you do get around to seeing this movie, I know that you'll enjoy the scene where uh, Soraya slash Paige's father wears a Norwich City Canaries. Yeah, go Canaries. Um, Yellow and green. Awful color combination, but still. Yeah, for their first place in the championships. The, so it's working out for them. But um, but yeah, so she grows up in Norwich. She comes from, most interestingly, a, a family of professional wrestlers. Uh, her father, uh, played by Nick Frost, and her mother, played by Lena Headey, um, have sort of their own little professional wrestling uh, circuit that they run in Norwich um, and obviously very bare bones and nothing compared to the professional style production of uh, the WWE or anything like that. Uh, but also her brother, uh, Zach Knight, who is played by Jack Loudon in the movie. Um, Zach Attack is his wrestling name. Uh, Jack Loudon, of course, we saw in Mary Queen of Scots recently. But she comes from this family and originally both Zach Attack and uh, Soraya slash Page get a tryout with the WWE with uh, Hutch, who's played by Vince Vaughn as sort of this, you know, nationwide recruiter for the WWE, goes around looking for new talent. Um, you know, they have sent him some videos and uh, he likes what he sees. So he calls both of them in. You know, this is not really a spoiler because it's in the trailer, but, you know, after tryouts, uh, it just so happens that Zach does not get the call up, but Page does. Um, and that actually, you know, causes obviously some interesting an interesting dynamic in the movie um, between the two characters, which is sort of a direction I wasn't quite expecting to see. And that's one of the things that I like about the movie is that I think it goes in some directions that maybe you wouldn't expect for, you know, a conventional sports movie, crowd pleasing sports movie biopic. I mean, that's not to say that it's like something totally original or out of left field, but I really appreciated some of the things they did to sort of subvert your expectations. Another area where I think they did, you know, without saying too much is involve some of the other females who are training with, uh, with Soraya once she eventually, you know, is called into and begins training for the WWE. Um, I think that, uh, the way that they treat these characters, the way that these characters are initially presented, uh, you know, you think they're going to go one way and then it turns out, you know, they treat them in a very different way, which I uh, very much appreciated and is the sign of a good movie. Um, and I think this is just, again, an incredibly enjoyable, crowd-pleasing and inspiring movie about something that I couldn't care less about. And really, I think that speaks to the strength of the movie that you could take a subject like professional wrestling, which, you know, I, again, couldn't care less about. And even after watching this movie, like it doesn't make me want to go watch professional wrestling, which maybe that's a, a disappointment to them because of course this is produced by WWE Studios and Dwayne Johnson, who also appears in the movie. Um, and it's more than just a cameo, to be honest, too. He does a great job as always. He plays himself. So that may not be what they want to hear, but nevertheless, I think this is a great movie. And probably the best thing about it is uh, the cast, you know, I guess I haven't mentioned her at this point, but Florence Pugh stars in the movie um, as Soraya slash Paige, and she's an absolute star. Um, I think, you know, she's this is a young career for her thus far. We've talked about some movies that she's going to be in going forward, and I'm just really excited to see what she does because she's taking on very different roles. I mean, her her most prominent role prior to this was in a movie called Lady Macbeth, which is kind of a costume drama. Uh, and so to go from that to playing this sort of goth professional wrestler um, is obviously a great uh, shift. And, you know, it, she's going to shift again in some of the movies that she's going to be in later this year, whether it's, you know, Midsommar, the Ari Aster movie that's coming out this summer or later this year in Little Women. Um, 
and I, you know, I love to see that from a young actress who's, you know, constantly challenging herself from the beginning. Uh, and I think, you know, what she shows here is that uh, she absolutely has the charisma to light up the screen, regardless of what character she's playing. Um, obviously here, she's playing a very likable and very charming character. Um, but, she, you know, it, it's all about her performance, I think, which which makes us root for Paige this whole way. Um, because, you know, on, on the one hand, she could be kind of a hard edge character and, you know, is a little bit. Uh, but you you never do anything but root for her from the very beginning of this. And Florence Pugh is a huge part of that. I also think that she's backed up by a stellar supporting cast. Um, Nick Frost and Lena Headey honestly could not be more perfectly cast as the parents. Um, they're hilarious together. They have great chemistry. Um, and I, you know, I, I love the scenes of the whole family together and, uh, you know, just of the two of them together watching wrestling when they try to uh, interact with the family of Zach's girlfriend, uh, who is, you know, a more po- considerably more posh family that, you know, has never seen professional wrestling in their life. Uh, it causes some very interesting and funny sort of fish out of water dynamics. Um, and also Vince Vaughn is great in this movie. And I think that, you know, his character is sort of your traditional, like, drill instructor. You know, he's he's Lou Gossett Jr. from An Officer and a Gentleman. He's J.K. Simmons from Whiplash, right? He's the, you know, hard-nosed, like, uh, coach who, you know, is he, – he's very uh, critical of his pupils, but, you know, he does it from a different place. Uh, and I think that, again, this is an area where I think that the movie could have gone more conventional, but it doesn't. And actually, this character turns out to be very well-developed in addition to, uh, you know, the fact that he, he gets some great lines, gets some great sort of burns, uh, as you would expect from this type of character. He, you know, he's also a well-drawn character, and we learn, you know, some things about him that we probably wouldn't, you know, in a worse movie that just puts him up as a caricature, really. And this is one of the the best performances, I think, that Vince Vaughn has had in, in quite a while. And like I said, I think Dwayne Johnson adds some really nice uh, work in the couple of scenes that he shows up in as well. Uh, so, yeah, this movie is great. It's one of my favorites of the year so far. Uh, I hope it will get more attention because I don't think it did very well at the box office. Um, and that's a real shame because uh, it's the kind of movie that everyone can enjoy, whether you like wrestling or not. And I, you, you can trust me on that because, like I said, I don't like wrestling and I love the movie. Um, so please go out and see it. And that includes you too, Scott. Um, I'm going to give this movie a 9.1. Excellent, excellent film. Yeah, high high praise coming for you, Scott. You know, you'll know this from the text conversation that we had. But I was literally going to go see this movie. I had it planned out, and it it had stopped showing in Boston somehow when I was going to go see it. And it was only like three weeks after it started showing, and I was yeah, I was very confused. Uh, granted, it was the weekend of Captain Marvel was when I was going to go see it, and that was why. But it, it felt like it was two or three weeks after its full uh, yeah. a- unveiling in terms of a wider release. And I was a little bit confused and, why, but I'm I'm also glad that you clarified that that Dwayne Johnson played himself in this movie as if he doesn't play himself in every movie that he's in. <laughs> he literally plays himself though in this movie. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, I, it is interesting, you know, because even though you know we're not into professional wrestling, professional wrestling is still extremely popular, um, and like you know, it's selling out arenas and it, it's a you know makes a ton of money. Like Vince McMahon is not. Uh, he, he's doing quite well for himself, uh, even after all these years. So you would think that a movie like this, which uh, is, you know, 
comes from a very well-known studio like WWE, a very well-known product in professional wrestling, would be able to attract more attention. Uh, I just wonder if, unfortunately, you know, in a lot of professional sports, uh, it, they're very male-centric, and I wonder if the fact that this movie was about uh, a female caused it to take a hit when, you know, you consider that a lot of the WWE fans are probably male. I, I think that's definitely possible. Th- this movie, I don't want it to be too negative about this movie's financial performance. It definitely made its money back. It, it was like an $11 million budget. That doesn't include marketing, but it made about 35 to $40 million at the box office. So it definitely made its money, and it's, and I'd imagine its marketing budget back. Maybe barely breaking even. I'm not, I'm not saying it r- raked in the dough, but I don't want to be too negative on its box office performance. Yeah, and I will say, this is something I didn't really say in my review as well, but I think that maybe one of the weaker points of the movie is that it feels like it's trying to market wrestling to a neutral audience at certain points, like an audience that doesn't know about professional wrestling. Because literally, like, the final fight of this movie is kind of treated as if... I mean, they make it very clear that wrestling is scripted, right? Um, Like, from the very beginning. Like, there's no denying that. But, like, they make it literally seem like uh, you know, it's a boxing match or something where you don't know what the outcome is going to be. Um, and so I think they kind of did that as a way to sort of pitch it to non-interested audiences, people like me. Uh, and I don't know that that part really worked for me. Um, but yeah, still, I would have expected, um, you know, maybe even bigger box office returns for, you know, a movie about a very popular sport. I think it probably just came out at a, at a tough time between Captain Marvel and, you know, yeah. how you know how to train your dragon and Alita and Happy Death Day to You. It was a little bit crowded for this kind of movie. Right. And I'm not saying that February was like, oh my God, it raked in, you know, the box the global box office. It, it's been notable and that it hasn't made that much money in, relative to past years, especially last year with Black Panther coming out. But it, it's true that people weren't really going out to the theater in late February and there were enough other movies that probably were a little bit more uh, attention grabbing for audiences. You know, a follow up to Happy Death Day, which was a well received movie, Alita from James Cameron, and uh, How to Train Your Dragon, which is Lego the third movie. movie. Yeah, the third movie trailer and Lego Movie, which is a follow up. So it 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 probably just had a tough time in that sense. That being said, it's not like this movie completely bombed out yeah. like some other movies that we've seen this year already. This movie did make in the thirties. And so that's nothing to to wrinkle your nose at. But to your point, obviously a movie that you're rating a nine point one, and that I'm excited to see when it when it does happen, and it will happen this year, absolutely. Because you know I was bummed that I wasn't able to see this at the box office. But uh, obviously, you want to see a movie that you give a nine point one, do a little bit better at the box office. Yeah. Awesome. Well, ne- next movie, flipping the table here, uh, Captive State. That's a movie that I saw in the month of March that you did not. Captive State is directed by Rupert Wyatt and is a sci-fi thriller. Rupert Wyatt, of course, of the fame of Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which is the first movie in that new trilogy that happened you know, in the last decade or so. And this movie stars uh, a sort of ensemble cast of John Goodman, Ashton Sanders, Jonathan Majors, Machine Gun Kelly, Ver- and Vera Farmiga, uh, in a variety of roles here in a sort of post-apocalyptic Chicago, particularly in, in one neighborhood in Chicago, I should say. Uh, and th- at this point, Earth has been taken over by a group of aliens that are called the Legislators. And uh, there's this rebellion, uh, I guess, rebellion group 
kind it's a it's a ragtag group to say the least there, there's no real lead performance here which is why I'm, I'm having a tough time kind of centering how i introduce this movie but basically you have this race of aliens called the legislators that have invaded and seized control of earth uh some humans and, and i would say even probably the majority of humans have become quote-unquote kind of collaborators who have su- you know submitted to the rule of of the legislators and have adapted to society. However, you do have this sort of groundswell of rebellion in a suburb or a neighborhood of Chicago led by Rafe Drummond, who's Jonathan Majors, who is believed to have died in, in an event that happens shortly before the time of this movie. His brother is how the movie kind of opens after the initial scene. His brother, Gabriel Drummond, played by Ashton Sanders, is still a sort of ragtag member of this rebellious group or sorry this rebellion and he doesn't really know whether or not to continue with rebellion or just try to cut his ties and 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 make his way in the world and this movie really takes over following both gabriel drummond as well as a police officer played by john goodman called william mulligan all of these roles sort of converge over the course of the film in a really interesting but ultimately somewhat unfulfilling way i think this movie tries to do a lot of things. I think what we've seen in a lot of Rupert Wyatt movies, including Rise of the Planet of the Apes, but also The Escapist, which was his first movie, is saying that he has a lot of really interesting and frankly, really great ideas for his films, but he's not always able to tie them all together. And I think that's probably the case for Captive State as well. I think this the world building and the lore that he's able to begin to engineer in this movie is by far the best part. I think that this sort of gritty dark sci-fi thriller is the kind of movie that i i think is really interesting and this world ruled by the legislators and and this weird sort of almost it's not civil war right but this interaction between people who are quote-unquote collaborators with these legislators and people who are are not taking this line down several years later i should say this movie set several years after that initial invasion but it's it's a film that tries to be really minimalist but probably to its own decrement more than its benefit. It, it does l- l- add an element of mystique to the world and, and a desire for more knowledge about the world, but it also doesn't probably give you enough to leave you satisfied and interested in learning more. Not that I'm not interested in learning more, but it just doesn't leave me satisfied with what I did know. It just left me feeling like I didn't know much, and I really wanted to know more because it's a really cool atmosphere, a really cool world that that is sort of constructed by Rupert White here. Uh, he clearly loves sci-fi, which which is why I'm super, ex- you know, between Rise of the Planet of the Apes and this movie. Uh, and and uh, that's why I'm really excited about he's he's actually, I believe, uh, tagged for the new Halo TV series being produced by Showtime coming out in 2020, which could be really interesting because he has a lot of ideas in, in the TV format. He might be able to, to explore a lot of those in a more interesting way. And he clearly likes ensemble cast, which I'd imagine what, is what Halo would be as well. Uh I don't know if I have too much more to add because anything else would be spoilers. And I do think this movie is worth seeing. It's not going to leave you ultimately satisfied and it's not going to be anywhere near 9.1. I can tell you that much, but it's a, it's a movie that's interesting and it's hooks toward the end and the twists that it takes over the course of the film are really interesting. It's a little bit heavy handed in its ultimate themes throughout the, this isn't a spoiler because it it clearly comes up in the first, like one of the first couple scenes of the movie, but one of the recurring themes is this quote that's, you know, uh, referencing the Trojan horse, of, of course, from uh, Homer's The Iliad. Uh, and also, I, I guess, actually, the, the Trojan horse comes up in the, in the Odyssey, not the Iliad. But, you know, you know, don't trust Greeks bearing gifts. 
basically is this line that comes up several times over the course of the film. And I'm not ultimately really sure what it's trying to mean other than exactly what it means. And in that sense, it feels heavy handed and a little bit on the nose and, and not quite clever uh, if it, if it is its central theme, but I think its performances are good enough. And, and it's, like I said, a really fascinating world that I'd love to know more about. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this movie wasn't really on my radar. I think that, you know, I'm not a huge sci-fi person and from your review, it doesn't sound like this is something you know, on the level of like an annihilation or an arrival that is kind of a must see. So, you know, maybe mm-hmm. later down the road after it comes out, I'll check it out. But, you know, not rushing out to see it. Yeah, I, I can't say that I recommend this as a, as a must see, but I would like people to see it. This is a movie as an example of something that did not do well at the box office, which is it's not surprising to me. There, there's nothing about this movie other than if you like like gritty sci fi thrillers, which I do. I'll admit that I do. I am I am part of that audience but there's nothing about this movie that's going to hook you and, and, and bring you in but there's so many good ideas that are worth thinking about and even worth revisiting on a second or third watch which i haven't done and I'm not, honestly to be fair i'm not sure that i will do but there, there's enough there to keep you engaged and interested throughout the movie even if it ultimately falls short in several key ways and so ultimately i'm landing at a 5.8 all right scott i'm going to turn things back over to you for our final movie which i've already alluded to yeah so this is you know, like you said, the winner for best documentary at the Academy Awards. And, you know, without hiding the ball, I think very well deserved. Um, this is the movie Free Solo, directed by uh, Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Chai Vasarhelyi. And they're a couple, they're husband and wife. Right. Um, and it is the story of Alex Honnold, who is a free solo climber, meaning that he does very dangerous rock climbs with. No gear, no, uh, you know, rappels, no, no uh, bungee cords or anything holding him up. It's just no parachute. Yeah, nothing between him and basically death. Uh, well, not basically, like actually death. Uh, and this movie follows him uh, in particular as he is trying to become the first person to ever free solo climb El Capitan, which is uh, in Yosemite, California. And it's a three foot, 3,000 foot high um, wall, but it's also, it's not just the story of that climb, which is something I really appreciated about it. It's also about how the, the climb is coinciding with some stuff going on in Alex Honnold's personal life, most specifically that he's basically in the first serious relationship, uh, with a woman that he's ever had. Uh, and you can imagine with that paralleling with him doing the most dangerous climb that he's ever uh, done that there's obviously some some dramatic tension that happens there. But I thought this was a really, really fascinating, not just, um, you know, of course, the climbing scenes and uh, the, the final scene where he does climb El Capitan is obviously extremely stressful. And I watched it through my fingers because I was so stressed out, even though, you know, I knew he was uh, going to complete the climb. But it's a really interesting character study as well uh, of someone who literally just doesn't have a fear gene in his body, right? Like he just simply does not feel, feel fear. And the way that, uh, that affects his relationships, you know, particularly his relationship with Sonny, who's the woman who, you know, become is his girlfriend in the movie is really interesting. And like, there's some, some interesting conversations that they have, like, you know, before Alex is about to, to go on the climb, you know, she, she, at one point, one thing that stuck out to me is she mentions to him this, uh, you know, someone that they knew who died from doing a free solo climb and or someone that Alex knew at least and says, you know, what, what do you what about their family? Like what you know, how do you think they felt with 
this guy going out to do this free solo climb and, and, you know, eventually dying. And he says to her, like, well, they should have known what they were getting into or like they should have known that was a possibility. And she's like, why would you say that? Like, I am that person. Like, I'm the, you know, the person who is that for you. And so it, it's it's interesting in that way because, you know, you really get to to see how Alex Honnold, may, maybe he's he's not supposed to be in, in a relationship like this because he doesn't really understand, at least from this movie, it doesn't seem like he really understands the sacrifices that his loved ones are making while he is out there, you know, sacrificing, possibly sacrificing his life, you know, for, for the, uh, you know, the sake of the the climb and the sake of the thrill. Um, and so that, that's, you know, a, a really interesting character study in, in addition to a really thrilling movie about a, an insane athletic feat. And I like that the movie, you know, although ultimately I, I came away admiring Alex Honnold a lot. I like that the movie doesn't let him off the hook for maybe, you know, not being, you know, how he should, in his personal life being as you know sensitive as he should in his personal life because you know i think that's true of a lot of people who are you know geniuses or you know very intelligent or very good at one particular thing like rock climbing in the case of alex honnold like sometimes because they're they're so advanced in this one area the simple things like their their own personal life get neglected and and they aren't as strong in that so i think that uh, Alex Honnold uh, may, maybe is an example in that. And I, I love how the movie explores that. And I just love this movie in general. I, I really have not stopped thinking about it since I saw it like a week and a half ago. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you, Scott. This movie or this documentary is absolutely insane. It's so well made. Uh, I The best way I can put this is that when the credits rolled for this, first off, I was absolutely wired from the tension of the final. I mean, the whole movie, the whole film, but the last... <laughs> 15 20 minutes especially the thing that's insane to me is like the close-up shots of like his feet like what is he putting his foot on like it it really honestly looks like he's just putting his foot on the flat wall which makes it even crazier because like you realize but then you know you hear him talk and you you realize he's got every single move planned out like he knows where these tiny indentations are in the rock and yet those tiny indentations are all that's sitting between him and dying yeah no it's absolutely insane I, I really love this documentary. I haven't rewatched it yet, but I really want to. It's so good. I want to also check out a bunch of other climbing docs. Uh, uh, kind of first on my list would be the Don Wall, which is Tommy Caldwell, who's also in this documentary. But he climbed the Don right. Wall. He free climbed Don Wall with a partner, Tom Jorgensen. It, I, one of the things that struck me the most about, about free solo beyond just the obvious things is that he, when he's doing the actual climb, you know, you know, the day the day he does it, the day he free solos it, he like runs by literally runs, by the way, runs by this. These like people who are sleeping on El Cap. Yeah. Who are like climbing El Cap and sleeping and they just casually drop like, oh, yeah, like most people climb this normally in like three to five days. It's a three to five day climb for yeah. most people. And he's and he free solos it in less than four hours. It's absolutely insane. And the fact it's that ab- those people are just chilling out there and they're not like freaking out about the fact that here's this guy just climbing up like with no harnesses or anything. Well, if you see that, like, you probably can't process it as quickly. I know, yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh, he's like, got something on. I just can't see it. Yeah. Exactly. Like, you're just like, wait, that guy just ran by and <laughs> he's not wearing climbing gear. He might die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we no, might, th- like, this movie. Watch him die. Exactly. Th- this documentary is just visually stunning. The production quality is super high. And I think the work by Jimmy Chin. And his wife, whose name escapes me already, which I apologize, um, is just absolutely magnificent. You know, I haven't seen Won't You Be My Neighbor, 
So I don't know how it ranks compared to that. And I do think that um, Three Identical Strangers is a better documentary. That being said, Free Soul is my favorite documentary from last year, I think, just in terms of experience watching it. And I I can't recommend it highly enough. I'm like obsessed with Alex Honnold now. I've watched so many videos related to him and trying to just get, get more of who he is um, and learning more about him because he's fascinating to me. Yeah, could not agree more. Um, do you have a favorite scene or moment that maybe you haven't mentioned from this one? This entire thing is just spectacular. Uh, just in terms of shots, right? So if we're not, if we're not, okay, first off, the free solo is the best part of this movie. It's absolutely insane. But if I'm choosing something besides that, there's these cool graphics they do with El Cap that I really like. They like draw stuff on it and mm-hmm. show the route and things like that. And I just think that's good filmmaking from a documentary perspective. So they're doing cool things with that. So I enjoyed that. But, you know, any of these climbing sequences are super interesting. I think there are, I guess, just to talk about some of its flaws for a second. Um, I really like they take they take a very holistic approach. And to your point, don't let Alex off the hook for some of these things. I also like that they explore as a psychology major. I like they explore the neurological um, maybe sources for some of his abilities uh-huh. to do free soloing. So particularly around his lack of fear uh-huh. and lack of fear response and how he's able to remain calm and collected when he's doing these, what should be just, you know, absolutely debilitating and paralyzing activities. And I thought that was interesting. My one of my one of if not my biggest problem with the movie, and this isn't that major of a complaint. I want to be really clear, and that'll be reflected in my score when I give it. But one of my biggest complaints about the movie is that it doesn't close the loop on the neurological aspect. It brings it up. It shows him getting brain scans. They briefly talk about it, and they don't really kind of dot the I's and cross the T's. In my opinion, on that on that front, and so that's like one of the one of the ticks against it in my book. But other than that, like everything about this doc is great. It's less than hundred minutes, I think. I think it's under hundred minutes, or if it's over hundred minutes, it's just barely over hundred minutes. But every minute is worth it. You should watch this doc. Yeah, absolutely. And one other shot that I'll I'll mention is that I I don't actually think it's a shot they did for the movie. Like I think I think it's archival footage, but. There's one sequence where they're talking about a bunch of free solo climbers who have died uh, from doing free solo climbs. And we see someone who's climbing a, a large, you know, wall mountain and they fall and, you know, they're you're watching them basically fall to their death. And you're seeing like the person get smaller and smaller. And then at the last second, their parachute pops up. And it's really just like an amazing, like haunting 10 seconds, you know, where you you literally think you're watching someone plummet to their death. And then you realize that. You know, they do have a parachute and when their parachute, you know, does expand, it's a it's a stunning shot. So that one stuck out to me as well. No, I think that's a that's a great scene. I that also is very striking as well, because you're like because you're seeing that for the first time. And you, if you don't know, it's coming. You're like, shit, are they really going to show this guy like dying yeah, no. on screen? And then, yeah, you see the parachute. So <laughs> thank God. Yeah, Scott, I'm going to go big with this one. You know, you gave a, a 10 to three identical strangers. And I for me, this was by far and away the best documentary of last year for me. And I can't think of many problems that I had with it. Like I said, the fact that I'm still thinking about it right now, um, I think says a lot. So I'm going with a 10. I think this would have been in my top 10 of last year had I seen it then. You know, I totally get that. I respect that. You know, for me, I went ahead and added all the movies that I saw before the Oscars from last year to my list. Uh, I'm going to stop updating that list now. So it's, it is final, but I put free solo in my top 20. Didn't quite crack my top 10, maybe on a rewatch. It, it might crack my top 10. I don't know, but I'm with you. This movie's great. This documentary is great. It, again, I think three identical strangers is better. I did give that a 10. I'm not giving this one a 10, but I'm giving it a really high score. It's a 9.0. Yeah, very fair. 
Awesome. Scott, I think that will just about do it for our first ever rapid fire review roundup. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? No, glad we were able to talk about all of these movies. Uh, and, you know, I like I said, I'm a huge fan of a lot of them. I hope people will check out something like, you know, Fighting With My Family, obviously, you know, a movie that uh, came out this year and, and kind of came and went in theaters really quick. But also stuff like Free Solo, which I believe is on uh, Amazon Prime now, uh, or it's on some streaming service I know. I hope it's on you- Hulu. It's on Hulu. Hulu, that's what it is. Um, you know, uh, obviously, I think it's best viewed on the big screen. If you can, if it's still showing in any places on the big screen, I think check it out. Uh, but you know, this was a fantastic movie. I gave it a ten. Uh, so check it out. However, however you can see it. Um, and yeah, you know, the same goes for High Flying Bird, also on Netflix right now. Um, there's just a lot of good stuff right now. If you know where out, out right now, if you know where to look, uh, and hopefully we have helped you, uh, you know, find out where to look. Totally, totally agree, Scott. Where can people find you on Twitter? I am at Scarvy Dent. Awesome. And I'm at S. Shelton2013 over on Twitter. And our podcast is on Twitter as well. That's at Media Plug Pods. You can find us over there. Obviously, we're normally talking about some like it, Scott. But every month, now from now on, we're going to be doing this show as well as Champs Lunch. So there's a whole host of podcasts that are going to be housed over there at, at Media Plug Pods. Check it out. And as well as our podcast Patreon page, the same deal goes for that that's www.patreon.com slash media plug pods there are a bunch of different reward tiers over on patreon and those apply to all of our podcasts not just some like it's scott so check those out and pledge pledge to the podcast support us help us out how you can we'd really appreciate it even if it's only at the one dollar level again www.patreon.com slash media plug pods check it out for yourself if you choose not to support us over on patreon however that's totally fine you can still find us on apple podcasts and on podbean where we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us as well as subscribed and shared so that we can continue to reach a broader audience all right scott i have said enough we really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us talk about two months worth of movies scott two months worth of movies uh you'll we'll be back with us with with this type of episode next month where we talk all about the movies that we saw in April that we weren't able to talk about on the podcast. But until then, I'm Scott Shelton for Scott Harvey. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.